Take a minute with me and look at Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 8. As we sang those last couple of songs, and can it be ends with a question. Can it be possible? As Eric was asking, it is possible and it's part of the gospel's wonderful news of glad tidings conveyed to us. I want to remind you of something and I hope that though simple, it may be meaningful to you. Last Lord's Day and in a church update that I wrote you this week, I mentioned the eighth verse about generous men who who sit around and creatively think of things they can do for the Lord and for others. And there's a verse in the Bible about them, and it's right here. Isaiah 32, 8, But the liberal, and we're not speaking of liberal politicians. As I said last Sunday, we are speaking of men with liberal hearts who are very generous in the use of their assets and income for the benefit of the Lord and others. But the liberal deviseth liberal things. And by liberal things shall he stand. A liberal man is thinking about who could I give something to? Who can I do something for? What can I do for the Lord that would further his kingdom? He's devising instead of wicked imaginations, because the Bible speaks of those who devise wicked things upon their beds. They're thinking of fantasies of sin rather than devising liberal things for the Lord and for others. So it's a, it's a mental process of thinking creatively, who could use some help right now? I want to give it. Not someone else should give it, I want to give it. Because it's the liberal man who's doing the liberal thinking, and by liberal things shall he stand. God will bless him in this life, and God will bless him in the world to come for verses that I sent you in the church email. I want to take this text and apply it to the God of heaven. The Bible tells me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. For the Greeks seek after wisdom. And the preaching of the cross is to them foolishness. It's not worthy of Athens or our philosophers. The Jews require a sign. And so the gospel is to them a stumbling block. But unto us which are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is such a gloriously devised plan of salvation where the immortal dies in order to give us, his enemies and rebels, everlasting life. And so I look at this text, and while we use it for ourselves, its greatest illustration is by God the most liberal, devising liberal things for us. And by His liberality, we shall praise Him for eternity. He shall stand as the most gracious, glorious, merciful, and loving Savior in the universe because He's devised such a plan of salvation. If you didn't like it, then just be thankful that the pastor liked it. Isaiah 32 and verse 8. Let us take a few minutes here and uh, take up another trait of our Lord Jesus Christ. It has been taught in this church for a long time, because the Bible teaches it, that one of the most or the most beautifying trait or character trait of a man or a woman 
is graciousness. Graciousness is such an enhancing character trait to a person's words and his actions. And a great man is going to be greatly gracious. And so we want to ask ourselves about graciousness. We want to ask ourselves, is the Lord Jesus gracious? It is the trait, I find graciousness one of the hardest words to define because we do not use it like we should. We don't use it as often as we should. But let us try to define it. It's the trait that when another person has it and you're in their presence, you feel fully accepted, forgiven, loved, important, special, and warmed. It's an embracing character trait. It makes you feel like you're the most important person in the world to them. And that they have gently and mercifully forgiven you of any faults on your part. And you stand on ground that you don't have to defend. That you're fully accepted with them. It is graciousness, is speech and conduct that is agreeable. Benevolent. Follow with me in a string of adjectives or nouns. Charitable. Graciousness is charming. It's cooperative. It's courteous. It's forgiving. Friendly. Graciousness is gentle. It's kind. Merciful. It's modest. Pleasing. Sympathetic and thoughtful. Graciousness is a big word. And it's got wonderful things contained in it. And when you meet a gracious person... You feel it. You feel it in a sentence or two by their facial expression, the spirit of their words, and the content of their words. They create an atmosphere of acceptance and pleasure and warmth that's hard to define. These persons are usually described by words such as lovely, charming, delightful, pleasing persons. A woman with such a husband will never fear and will feel fully secure and accepted by him always because he's so gracious toward her. A woman with such a husband will feel warmed and very alive to life's best by its embracing nature. A woman with such a husband will delight for him to meet others for their great pleasure and profit because he makes everyone feel so good when they're in his presence. I have preached whole sermons on graciousness and my description of it is now ended. Is our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, such a man? Amen. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. I love graciousness, and I want you to love graciousness. Most of my life, I feel that I'm about as gracious in my speech as a pit bull on crack. I've been around gracious people. I love them and I hate them. I love them for their graciousness, 
I hate how bad they make me look and sound. And I hope you understand my words. I truly love them. Oh, to be gracious. Is the Lord Jesus a gracious husband to us? You know, look in Proverbs chapter 11 and see David's son Solomon lift up this character trait. Proverbs chapter 11. Now it's going to be speaking about a woman here, but the point is still made of how important graciousness is. I've tried to define it for you. I wish it was taught in school. I wish that every parent would sit their children down and teach them how to be gracious and then show them how to be gracious in their dealings between themselves and their dealings with all others. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in Proverbs eleven sixteen, it says, A gracious woman retaineth honor. The first half of that verse is only five words long, but it tells you what kind of women will always be esteemed, popular, and respected. They're gracious. A gracious woman. That's why I said it's one of the most adorning character traits of all. Forget going to the hairdresser. For, forget the makeup or the accessories that you add to your wardrobe. Add graciousness. Increase your graciousness. A gracious woman retaineth honor. She's always going to be respected and esteemed. 22.11. Same book. Proverbs 22.11. We're just looking at how the Bible exalts this character trait. A popular verse in this church. He that loveth pureness of heart. Proverbs 22.11. He that loveth pureness of heart. For the grace of his lips the king shall be his friend. A man may not have much else to offer a king. But if he has a pure heart. That leads to speech that is gracious. And a king will be a friend of a man who has gracious speech. Solomon knew this story of David his father and King Saul, and David his father, and King Saul's son named Jonathan. And the reason David was so highly esteemed by Jonathan was the graciousness of his speech in the first five verses of 1 Samuel 18. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Graciousness. It is so charming and warming and endearing and pleasant. Ecclesiastes 10.12 The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. If we can learn to speak better, we will learn to speak graciously. Now I've already quoted from Psalm 45 and verse 2, Grace is poured into thy lips. The Lord Jesus Christ is the master of verbal graciousness. Look at Luke chapter 4. Or do you know the story well? You should know it well by now. Luke 4, I've referred to it many times. Jesus is back at his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. When an opportunity is made for him to read Scripture, as any other young man of 30 years of age or more in the city of Nazareth, He takes the Word of God. And verse 17 tells us when he took the Word of God, he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. 
he turned the book of the law of God to Isaiah 61. It tells us. And and then he quotes Isaiah 61, and here we go. Is it in red writing in your Bible? If you have a red letter edition, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. He's my husband. Daughters of Jerusalem, do you want to see my beloved? We are flies on the wall in this synagogue. And the Lord Jesus just read these two verses from Isaiah 61. He closed the book and he gave it back to the minister of the synagogue and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Praise the Lord. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is poured into his lips, and some of that grace came out there in Nazareth. When the Jews sent their officers to bring him bound to them, they came back without him. And they asked, where is he? No man ever spake like this man. John 7.46 He would tell you and me, let your speech be always with grace. Seasoned with salt. I read that verse and I think somehow I got things reversed. Let your speech be always with salt, seasoned with grace but his is always with grace, seasoned with salt. He knew how to be salty with his enemies, the Pharisees, but oh, was he gracious in his speech. A spiritual song that we sing says it well, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. Oh, there are in the arms of my dear Savior 10,000 charms. His charming graciousness. He is truly altogether lovely by this beautifying trait that exalts men and women above their fellows. One closing verse I'd like you to see, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 about our Lord Jesus Christ. And see how the Holy Spirit forms this particular verse. First Peter chapter 2. Will you do these things? Will you do what's in verses 1 and 2 based on verse 3? Read, read it, follow along with me. Verse 1, 1 Peter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, and hypocrisies, and envies, and all evil speakings. Let's get rid of all those things. Verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Is there enough motivation for you to lay aside the things of verse 1 and to take up the duty of verse 2? 
Because of verse 3, has the Lord been gracious to you? Has He spoken graciously to you? Has He been gracious to you? Has He accepted you over and over again when you've gone back to Him, having offended Him and failed Him? He is altogether lovely. He is gracious. My favorite character trait, the one I desire the most, He has the mostest of it. He has all of it, and He's altogether lovely. I wish I could be a little tiny 1% of Him. And I pray that all of us will be conformed to the image of God's dear Son, especially in this character trait. Will you let me cover one more trait? I've been married for 35 years. I've had seven children. They've tried me. My wife and I have never yelled in our house. Children, if you can think of one or two times, I want you to come to me and tell me they're exceptions. I can't remember them. Mom and I have counseled together on this. There was no screaming in our house. Oh, I got louder. No screaming or yelling. Sherry and I have been in homes. Some Christian. We're in 30 minutes. We're sick to our stomachs. We want to go vomit. Because it is so unsettling and painful to hear family yelling at each other. I want to tell you that a great man has and keeps a peaceful life and creates peace in all his relationships. They love peace. Peace. Friendliness results in pleasure between parties because it's based on pursuing and maintaining peace with another person. Peace is so comforting. I hope it is to you. Peace is so pleasant. And a perfect husband would be a great peacemaker. Peace is the absence of bitterness. There's no hostilities. There's no unrest. It's a glorious and necessary setting for pleasure. You've got to be at peace. Everything needs to be quiet between parties so that you can enjoy the good things of life in a loving relationship with another person. Look at Proverbs 17.1 to see that First of all, our husband knows its importance. Proverbs 17.1 The wise preacher Solomon wrote, Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. When you have a person that you love, or a family that you love, and all you have is a tube of saltines. Forget anything to put on them. But it's quiet. It is better. And I know this by experience, as our brother Newell mentioned about the Word of God, but my experience doesn't add to this. It's just the truth of God's Word. It is better than if you had this great filet mignon meal. But there's strife, tension, bitterness, unrest between the parties that are there. Give me a family at peace and a tube of crackers and I am one very happy person. A great man loves peace and the Lord Jesus Christ loves peace. He wrote this verse. I wouldn't be able to give you this verse 
unless he had written it. Ecclesiastes 4, 6 tells us the same thing, but we'll not turn there. It's a terrible shame that many worldlings and some Christians have homes and relationships filled with arguments, bitterness, criticism, envy, fighting, meddling, revenge, strife, and war. Where did they come from? What hell brought them into this world? Why haven't they learned the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? He is a peacemaker. And he wants us to be peacemakers. And he wants us to be at peace. And he is at peace. And he gives peace. And he offers peace. And he causes peace. A level of peace that passes all understanding. Hell spawns some men. James chapter 3 tells us the tongue is a fire. It is set on fire of hell. It's a poison. A deadly poison. But we want peace. And the Bible exalts it in many places. You're not too far from Psalms. Look at Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Peace is a delightful thing. Peace is a wonderful thing. Peace is something we should always be pursuing in our relationships. But Jesus Christ is the great peacemaker that I'm leading up toward in considering this. Since you're in the chapter, look at verse 37. Mark the perfect man, a man who walks uprightly and does that which is right in the sight of the Lord, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Job would say, acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace, and thereby good shall come unto thee. God loves peace. And he can make peace two ways. He can give you his Holy Spirit and lead you to peace that way, or he can crush all his enemies and there will be peace, because there will be no one left to fight. He loves peace and there will be peace in heaven for all of eternity. Does the Bible call him the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9, 6? He's the Prince of it. That is a wonderful concept. In Haggai 2, it says, Zerubbabel, don't be discouraged by the smallness of this second temple, because in this place I'm going to give peace. He rent that veil, and we had peace with God, and we can go directly into the presence of Jehovah by His Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He made peace with the strictest judge in the universe and destroyed all enmity between foes. He has reconciled us to God forever. He loves propitiation. He loves peace. He loves reconciliation. He loves atonement. What does the word atonement mean? Spell it. At one meant. Being at one again. He hates cold wars. I hate cold wars. Do you hate cold wars? In your marriage. In your house. When there's strife, it's horrible. It eats your innards out. You get ulcers. It disrupts things. It is totally displeasing to God. It ruins families. It drives children away. It destroys churches. Because there are some people spawned from hell who love division, differences, bitterness, debate, Variance. And if you look at their lives, they basically have a life of hell. No one wants to be around them. 
Lord, make us lovers of peace and makers of peace. But we thank Thee, Lord, that our Savior Jesus Christ was a man of peace. Look at what He says to us in John chapter 14. John 14. We do not want to get distracted, and I am a little tiny bit, sorry, but only a little tiny bit, because I told you in the beginning that we did not want to get the emphasis off on us being these traits, though we should be, because we should be conformed to the image of God's Son. Because we want to see these in the Lord Jesus Christ. A tube of saltines is better with peace than a filet mignon dinner with all the trappings without peace. But I have a third alternative. What about the filet mignon dinner with all the trappings with peace? Oh, yes! Excuse me. I didn't have anything to eat. By choice. Yes! That's the blessings that we have with the Lord. He gives us all the blessings that we can possibly enjoy. He fills our hearts with food and gladness and peace. He gives riches and there's no trouble that that is given with it. He gives riches to the men of this world and there's trouble that accompanies every gift. But not us. Because he loves peace. Look at what he would say. John 14, 27, he had some apostles that were disturbed because of some things he had said at the Last Supper. These last chapters of John are all wrapped up into a few hours before his crucifixion. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is the Lord Jesus Christ giving peace. I am not talking about the United Nations. How much peace have they brought on this world in the last 65 years? What did the League of Nations do before them? I am talking about the peace that the Lord Jesus Christ can put in our hearts. And He will do that. Look at 1633. These are statements about the trait of peace that Jesus has. John 1633. Is it in the red writing in your Bibles? These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. No hostilities. No disquiet. No strife. No envy or bitterness. Just peace. Happiness. Oneness. Unity, agreeableness, pleasantness, relaxation, no defensiveness, no fear of what's going to be said or what might come up. Because all is open, all is forgiven, all is wonderful, all is beautiful. Peace. These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for verses like this. Do you know it's the Lord Jesus Christ that could be asleep in the hold of a ship on the Sea of Galilee and a great storm arise so that the apostles were afraid for their lives? Master, Master, carest thou not that we perish? O ye of little faith. And they wake him from his nap and he has to come to the deck and he says, Peace. Be still. And it's a, what's it called in the Bible? It was a great storm and it turned into a great calm. <laughs> a great calm. Ever had a great storm in your heart? Do you have one right now? He is able to speak peace 
be still, and give you a great calm. You forfeit it by not doing what he commands to have peace. You forfeit it by not going to him and laying hold of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and asking for that peace. He will give it, or these words are not true. He will give it. What does Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 tell us? Thou wilt keep him in what kind of peace? Perfect peace. For whom? Those that are keep their minds stayed on him? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. When we get away from him and television replaces him or our job replaces him or family or bodily exercise or car or house or anything else replaces him and our mind is not stayed on him. And of course we have necessities that we must tend to over here. But if our mind is stayed on him, he is able to keep us in perfect peace no matter the circumstances. They are of little consequence to him of none. Because he can still speak peace to a storm and calm it at sea. Look at Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. These are, these are verses of Scripture that we all know. We refer to them. We, we quote them. We should know them. We should be able to share them with others. Philippians 4, 6. I'm speaking to anyone now that has trouble in your life, in your life of any kind, economic, physical, family, children, employment, Anything. Political. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. That word careful in our King James Bibles, used throughout so that we can define it easily by reading the whole Bible and finding its other uses, means anxious, fearful, or worried. Be anxious, fearful, or worried for nothing. Be careful for nothing. No matter what is going on in your life, don't be anxious, fearful, or worried about it. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, because God has done many good things for you, let your requests be made known unto God. This is how you should deal with those issues in your life. And the peace of God, not the peace of men, but the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Have you ever said to yourself, or have you ever said to your wife, I'm going to go crazy? You don't remember, do you? (laughs) I'm going to go crazy because a set of circumstances may be coming that seems overwhelming to us. But He is able to keep our hearts and our minds with peace that passes understanding. There is no explanation for the level of peace that a child of God can have in the worst of circumstances. The Apostle Paul and Silas could be stripped naked, scourged by the Romans, and then put in fetters in the deepest dungeon of the prison in Philippi of Macedonia. And what did they do there at midnight? They sang praises to God. And the jailer was totally convicted by these men at the peace they had, though he had done everything he could do to them short of death. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. God doesn't care about your matters of liberty. Never has, and He never will, and we won't either. Romans 14 is about matters of liberty. Things that you think are important that no one else thinks is important, and God especially doesn't think is important. 
Primarily, it's what they were eating and drinking because some of it had been offered to idols. And the poor Jews were so superstitious about eating something offered to an idol that it offended them. The Gentiles, they didn't care. They knew that it was just a piece of stone after they were converted. But the apostle comes down to the 17th verse in Romans 14. He says, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. Our worship of God is not worrying about all these stupid little things about whether a person eats meat offered to an idol or not. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's what our religion is. Who's the founder of our religion? The Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't care about all that ticky-tacky garbage that some people love to worry about because they've set their whole lives to worry about those little things instead of righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being such a Savior and such a husband. Do you know what He can do for you? When a man's ways please the Lord, He maketh even His enemies to be at peace with Him. If you have an enemy in your heart and mind, you can't sleep without thinking about him. He gets to chase you 24 hours a day, even if he lives 10 miles or a 1,000 miles around the other side of the earth away from you. He chases you because you don't have peace. But he's able to give peace even with enemies. He's the God of all peace. We'll not turn to the seven references I have here. For the God of all peace and the God of peace. The salutations and blessings of the Bible, whether it's Numbers chapter 6, 2 Peter chapter 1, grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. What a religion. Isn't that a wonderful religion we have? Some would say, well, Psalms 2 is so terrible. He, he's so ferocious. Yes, to his enemies and to our enemies. He is. Isn't that the way you want your husband? Ferocious against your enemies? But do you know how he salutes when his epistles are written? Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. Amen. You know what you do when you read epistles. You blow over the first couple of verses because you want to get to the meat. Why is that salutation repeated over and over? Because that's our religion. That is our husband. He's a man of grace, mercy, and peace. If so, be that ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Right. Or have you just tasted that the Lord is ferocious? I want to preach his ferocity against his enemies, but I want to preach his graciousness toward us, his children. Will you turn to my favorite verse of the last five years? Romans chapter 15 and verse 13. For all those years, it was Psalm 37 and verse 4. But I just don't know anymore. For five years I've been confused if you were to have pinned me and said, what's your favorite verse in the whole Bible? That's too hard of a question. I mean, we should have about a hundred favorites, not one. How can you single it down to one? But some of you have life verses, and I, I had one for 40 years. But I've got a competitor for it. And you know what it is. You've heard it before from me. Romans fifteen thirteen. Your husband wants to sit and not have saltines with you in a peaceful atmosphere. He wants to have the very best that he can offer. He did not come to give us life, barely, but he came to give us life abundantly. And it's filled with peace. Just happiness. You never have to worry that somebody's going to criticize you or somebody's going to bring something up. It's just all buried. It's just all gone. It's just all peaceful. It's all loving. It's all open. It's all cleared. 
And that's the way He is with us because He's the God of peace. Of course, if we've sinned, of course, if we haven't confessed sin, He's going to chasten us. But do you know why He chastens us? So that He can get us back to a peaceful relationship as soon as possible. Romans fifteen thirteen. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This is the Christian religion. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. That lifestyle described right there in that 13th verse of Romans 15, joy, peace, and hope, filled with all of it, filled with all of it, and abounding in this, and it's through our believing. We believe the message of the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Ghost, He is able to fill us with all peace, joy, and cause us to abound in hope. Life is not hopeless. Life is very hopeful. Right. A peaceful dinner, holding hands, everything, everything melted away is such a wonderful thing. A family gathered together, happy, cheerful. There's no dissension between them. There's no differences, no animosity, no strife, no revenge, no envy. Just happy for each member is such a wonderful thing. I am sorry that some of you were born into families that did not have a home like that. I pray you in Christ's stead to make your home that way from this day forward. You do not need to yell. If you yell, it proves you have no authority. Yelling is not an evidence of authority. It's the proof of a lack of authority or you wouldn't have to do it. You should be able to whisper and get your way with your children. I want you to love peace. But I want you to remember that when your heart is troubled, he would say to you, let not your heart be troubled. That isn't the way to live. My wife, that isn't the way to live. I'm offering you peace. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you'll find rest for your souls instead of being so troubled. Find the peace that I'm able to give. Come to me and ask for it. I'll fill you with all of it through the power of the Holy Ghost. Our nation is in sad shape. I fear for the future of our nation for the sake of my children and grandchildren, and I do have a big family to worry about. But I don't fear very much. Because I close with this verse, and it's a little bit off the point, but it needs to be made because of the, the circumstances that we live in right now in this nation. David said, I will both, now when you hear the word both, how many do you have? Two, two things. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. There's lots of things that can discourage and distract us right now and cause us concern about the future of our nation. And we know how to deal with that. I wrote you about it this week. But I want to give you this verse about peace as we end. Jesus Christ is a great giver of peace. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. There's the two things. I will lay me down in peace and I will sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.